Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Alrighty. Let's get going, shall we? Good morning, Christ Community Church. Hey, hey, there we go. Um, well, uh, just a little update. Um, I know some of you saw that Monday was pretty hectic because uh, my wife was having surgery. Andrew's wife was having surgery by the same surgeon on the same day. Uh, mom, want, mom wanted to hang like a uh, plate around their neck so they know which one was which and made sure they did the right procedure. Um, so she, can't, she had her tonsils out. She's had tonsillitis five times and strep throat twice in the last year. Uh, so they said, finally, we got to yank those suckers out. And I didn't know when I told her she would do it. I just tonsils getting out. I knew people I went to high school with had tonsils. I thought, ah, it's no big deal. Well, apparently, if you're an adult, it's a big deal. And uh, so she's been on bed rest for uh, the last week, and she's been in some fair amount of pain for the last um, couple of days, uh, especially. That, uh, so just continued prayers. Everything's going to be fine. It's just been a trying week. Uh, one of the things they wanted her to do, which I'd never heard about till afterwards, was they wanted me to wake her up every two hours to drink water and every four hours take a pain pill. Okay, I thought, oh, that's no big deal. Set my iPhone, just wake up. What I didn't know, it takes you about that long to get into REM sleep. So, which means I haven't had REM sleep all week. So, if this morning I just start to babble incoherently, and I mean more than usual, um, just ignore it, nod and smile. I promise you we'll still be out of here by 1145, all right? So, that's the update. Keep us in prayer. Um, we're continuing this sermon series called More, and this is the next to last one. And the sermon series focuses on what the Bible says we truly need more of. We typically think we need more money, we need more position, we need more of whatever, more stuff. And, and the Bible says, nah, actually you don't because this life is the shortest part of eternity. What you need more of are things that have an eternal value. And one of those is worship. Now, one of my favorite stories about worship, have no idea if it's true, maybe one of those preacher stories that has been passed down for years. Little church. And I used to preach in a little church. I preached in a little church in upstate New York when I was in law school. I preached at a little church in West Virginia as an interim pastor before I came back here. For those of you who have been in little churches, you know that it used to be the tradition that you would walk in and there'd be like this board up near the side of where the pulpit was, and it would list the hymn numbers because you have hymn books. That way you knew which hymns you were going to sing, and so you would just flip there and you would start to sing. So this preacher, he's preaching verse by verse through the Bible. He's got a choir director or a worship leader who gets up there and leads the congregation in singing. And he just figures, the choir director, song leader, just figures that he's just going to continue preaching verse by verse through this book. And so he picks out some script, uh, hymns to go along with those scriptures. Well, the preacher, Sunday morning, gets a phone call that some of his parishioners were out drinking the night before. So he decides to call an audible and he decides to change his sermon on the evils of alcohol. And he gets up to the pulpit, and he says, if I had all the beer in the world, I would take it, and I would just throw it in the river. 
He said, if I had all the wine in the world, even the finest French wine, I would take it and I would throw it in the river. He said, if I had all the whiskey in the world, I'd take it and I would just throw it in the river. And he pounded his pulpit and he sat down. Choir director gets up and he's kind of shaking because he looks up and the last hymn listed is, come let us meet at the river. Um, So... Oh, anyway, so we're talking about worship. It was funny, too, because it just fits right in. When, when Megan came out of surgery, she, she warned me before. She's been under gas a couple of times. She said, I get a little loopy for a while afterwards. And I was like, oh, okay, this should be interesting. And so, and she did. She came out. I heard this voice. They said, she's coming out of recovery room. You can go to her room. Mom and I go back there. And then we just start rolling, laughing, because... They rolled her out into the hallway. She had both arms up, and she was singing How Great Thou Art at the top of her lungs. And I'm like, honey, honey, you just had your tonsils out. I don't think they want you singing at the top of your lungs. I mean, you could hear her in Scioteville. I mean, she was just so loud. And she looks up, she grabs my face, she goes, but I love Jesus, and I need to let him know. I said, Honey, he knows, but the doctor Jesus gave you told you to shut up. So, you know, <laughs> at least you know where her heart's at. Um, what is worship? Worship, I think, takes place. It's an action that takes place naturally. It just flows out of any time you put something or someone at the center of your life and give it ultimate value. And when you put something in the center of your life and you give it ultimate value, what's going to happen, what's going to flow out of you is that your mind, your emotions, and your will are going to submit to it. That's what's going to happen. It engages your entire being. And I thought about what what scripture to use this morning because the Bible talks so much about worship, from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, Revelation talks a lot about worship. There is more singing in the book of Revelation than in any other book of the Bible except Psalms. There's just singing everywhere. So I just finally decided on Psalm 95, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 through 11 of Psalm 95. So let's take a look at it. And break it down. And this is a psalm that scholars believe that when the nation of Israel would come together, this is one of the psalms they would sing in praise to God. So it starts this way Come, let us, notice that, come, let us sing for our joy to the Lord. Us. Now, can you worship on your own? Yes, you can, but. Typically in the Bible, the Bible assumes, and I'm gonna come back to this in a minute, that you are worshiping on a regular basis within a community of believers. And I'm going to show you why that's important here in a minute. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice... 
He would say, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness. That's when the Israelites tested God, didn't obey God. Where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. And he's talking about the parting of the Red Sea, all that kind of stuff. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearers go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And we're going to break all of that down. But if you go back and look, you'll see again, worship engages the mind, the heart, and the will. It involves all of those things. True worship involves all of those things. If it doesn't engage your entire being, it's not worship. You may be a fan, but it's not worship. There's a difference. There's a difference. The very English word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. Showing something what it is properly worth. Recognizing something for what it is properly worth and then living in line with that belief. That is true worship. Okay, so what do you need to worship? According to this text and others. Number one, you need community. You need to be in a community of diverse believers worshiping together. Now, that's very important. You've heard Dad say it. I believe it as well. I think it is a sin, and I do not use that word lightly. I believe it is a sin for there to be a black church, a white church, a Hispanic church. There should just be a church of believers. And what happens when you get a diverse number of believers, what do you get? You get diverse worship. When you have different people from different backgrounds, and you're truly worshiping together, hands, some people's hands will go up, some people will cry, some people will clap, some people will dance a little bit. You'll never see that. Me doing that, I can't dance. I can't even do the white man's overbite, that thing. It ain't going to happen. And some are just going to sit there and do this. This is the common white male kind of thing. Right? Okay. And some of you aren't even going to sing, because I know, because I've walked by you during worship sometime. I'm two feet from you. Your mouth's moving, but I'm not hearing a thing. So you're doing like a Britney Spears in Vegas thing for some reason in front of the Lord. But that's going to happen when you have a community of diverse believers come together. You're going to have diverse worship styles. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit, spoiler alert, but worship now is practice for worship in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And there are going to be a diversity of styles there too. And so you might as well get used to it now. The Apostle Paul says as long as it's orderly and it's in line with Scripture, it's fine. It's fine. Any of that is fine. So you need community, but you also need truth. You need truth. You need to understand who is the God you're worshiping. And typically what we do in North America is we like to choose ourselves what we believe and why. We like to do things buffet style. I'll take a little of this and a little of that and a little of this and a little of that. 
The problem is when you do that, you have created a God of your own making, and we are all lousy God makers. If you create your own God, that's what the Bible calls a false God, and it will disappoint you. Whereas if you line with the true God, your life will still have trouble, your life will still have trial, but that God will never leave you. Because that is the true God. And I argue with people about this all the time because it's becoming more and more popular. What I see, because I read a lot of leadership books, and I listen to a lot of leadership podcasts, and Eastern stuff is becoming real popular again, especially Buddhism. And I had this conversation, I've had a couple of these conversations with people. Well, can't you be a Buddhist and a Christian? And they look really shocked, and I say, no. They're like, what? I said, no, you cannot be a Buddhist and a Christian. The Buddha taught that life is about becoming one with the nothing. The Bible teaches life is about becoming one with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot convince me that the nothing and the Trinity are the same thing. Buddha taught life is about detaching yourself from any attachments, including emotion. It's about becoming to the point where nothing will affect you emotionally. You're not going to convince me that that's the same thing as love your neighbor as yourself and mourn with those who mourn. So if you want to call yourself a Buddhist and a Christian, the only problem with that is that both Buddha and Christ would say no. And what you're saying is, I know better than Buddha and Christ about what they taught. And that doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. You have to have truth. You have to align yourself with what Scripture teaches. And the cool thing about that is this. If you have truth, then you can also have true community. Let me show you what I mean. Now, many of you know Patrick and Eddie. Patrick and Eddie are from Uganda. Uh, this church is paying. We brought them over here. We're paying to send them through uh, Kentucky Christian University to get a Bible degree and then go back to Uganda to teach pastors there and plant churches. And so that's what we're doing with Patrick and Eddie. Now, when Patrick and Eddie got here from Uganda, their life experience and my life experience were literally worlds apart. We had absolutely nothing in common except what we believed about Jesus Christ. And he and I, Patrick and I, Eddie and I, we could have conversations with each other as brothers in Christ about Christ. Even though we had nothing else in common, we have the truth about Jesus Christ in common, so we always have that, and that's what creates true community. I can go to any part of the world and sit down with a fellow Christian, Orthodox Christian who believes in the Bible, and I can talk to them and be friends with them simply based on that truth. The truth creates the community. We have Republicans, Democrats, and people who don't care here. We have white, black, we have all, and, and we have sometimes have, we have Bengals fans, Browns fans, even some Steelers fans. Oh, why? But so, and yet, so what do we have in common? Jesus Christ. 
that's what we have in common. A church can be diverse as it needs to be as long as it agrees on the truth of Jesus Christ. That's two, three. This psalm talks about rest. If you look at verse 11... It says, so I, this is God speaking. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. What does that mean? He's talking to the Israelites who were rebellious. He said, they'll never enter my rest. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament picks this up in Hebrews 3 and 4 and talks about what this rest is. All right, I got to sidetrack here for a second, but just stick with me. Okay, I, prob- I promise you I'm not that tired. I don't know what I'm talking about yet. That may come in a minute, but right now I'm all right. In every other religion in the world, and some of you are going to claim I'm religion bashing, that's fine. In every other religion in the world, you have to earn your salvation. If you're Muslim, you will have to earn your salvation. If you're Buddhist, you will have to earn your way to total enlightenment. If you are Hindu, you will have to have good karma to get a better reincarnation. You will have to earn your salvation and righteousness. In Christianity, it has been earned for you by Jesus Christ. You do nothing except accept the gift of grace that has been offered to you. You do nothing else. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came and lived maybe 30, 33 years, we're not sure. And he lived a perfect life, tempted in every way, and yet never sinned. He did that not to say, I'm better than you. See, it can be done. He, He did it to say, now this is yours. Now this is yours. I tell non Christians all the time, see, this is how it breaks down. If you believe that that there's a need for justice in their world, and one day justice must come. You're right, and that justice day will come. And on that judgment day, here's how it shakes out. You can be judged by your own life or by Jesus' life. You pick. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will be judged by Jesus' life, which was perfect. Theologians, they use the fancy term imputed righteousness. Christ has earned this righteousness and he just gives it to you. One Christian writer says it's like this. It's like Jesus draws you so close into him that when the father looks at you, he can only see the son. And so he has lived this life for you. And then he went to the cross to pay the penalty for all the wrongs you have done. So your penalty for all your sins are paid. The sins you have committed, are committing, will commit. Those are all paid for if you ask for forgiveness. And Jesus' life is given to you. You earn nothing. You cannot earn in the kingdom of God. You can only receive. And once you receive, if you truly understand what you've received and from whom you've received it, the only proper response is worship. Is worship. And it talks about what that worship is. It is praise, it is shouting, it is thanksgiving. And that's another big thing thanksgiving. And notice, because this is, if you think about it, this is a weird hymn for the Israelites to have. 
And let me explain what I mean by that. It is calling people to worship while they're worshiping. It is saying, come, let us worship, but it's a worship song. And you say, well, which one is it, preparation or worship? Yes. Because you need to prepare to worship. You need to prepare yourself to worship. Before you come in here and start singing, you need to think about something. You need to think about who you are, what a rotten, stinking, selfish sinner you are, and I am, we're all in the same boat, and how good God has been to you to forgive you and live a life for you and take a death for you that you deserve. You need to think about those things. You need to think about how holy and right and good God is. Before you come in here and start singing, you have to prepare your heart, your mind, and your will in order for your heart, your mind, and will to be engaged. That has to happen. Now, worship is one of the most undervalued parts of the faith. I'll show you what I mean. We're going to go to another psalm. Here's what happens in the Bible all the time. When somebody gets in trouble, when they get their tail in a crack, they get thrown in prison, they're being hunted, they're being, their life is on the line. Typically, what a righteous person does is not just pray to God for help, but also start worshiping. Think about it. When, when Peter and the apostles are in jail, what do they do? They're singing psalms to God. What happens after the apostles are beaten? They're praising God that they're worthy to be beaten. How often have you done that? How often have you gone through a tough time and go, thank you, God, for that? We don't do that. I don't do that. I go, come on, man. Cut me some slack. And yet, look what David writes. Here is David writing a hymn. While he's being chased by Saul, Saul is trying to take his head. And here's what he writes. Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. So he does pray for help, that's fine. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicated me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. Look at that. I'm being pursued, but God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. Look at that. Look at what he's doing. He's worshiping. He's probably sitting in a cave with hundreds of people trying to hunt him down and cut him into little pieces. He's saying, God, be praised. See, this is what we do. We get into trouble. Something happens. We have physical problems. And we go to God and say, God, please help me. But how often we do, but God, may you be praised. And yet that's what happens in Scripture over and over and over again. Why? Why do they do that? Two things. One, I don't know. Two, I think I know. 
because worship changes you. Worship changes you. Worship strengthens you. Now hear me out. Typically, because we spend 24-7 with ourselves, we only think about ourselves. We always are thinking about what we want. Right now you're thinking, when's this guy going to shut up? It's hot in here, so I can go get something to eat. You've thought that at least once. At some time this week, driving by a convenience store, you've seen the sign that says Powerball, $650 million, and you thought, oh, Lord, the good I could do with that. Right? I heard that. I, um, and, and so we, we think about ourselves, and we even try to cloak our prayers basically in just selfish desires. We're always thinking about ourselves. But when you come into worship, if you've done what I've told you to do, if you're thinking about who God is, who you are, what you've received, when you come into worship, you're finally taking the spotlight off yourself and putting it on something greater. Because you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself stronger. Only God can do that. And so finally when we worship, we're taking all of our thoughts off of ourselves, which are largely wasted, and putting it on something worthy, which is the holy God. And so it changes you. It strengthens you to worship, to recognize there is something greater than my own selfish desires. Now that being said, I will buy a Powerball tomorrow. But anyway... But worship does that. Worship changes you. It really does change you. We spend so much of our time and energy chasing things that really don't matter. And typically when we do that, all it does is stress us out. Now, so many of us suffer from what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry means that you have a false god in your life. And so one of the other things you have to do before you worship is ask yourself this. What is your god? Is it the god of scripture? Or is it something else? And I'm not, when I say another god, I don't mean Buddha, I don't mean Muhammad, I don't mean Allah. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about making anything of ultimate value and making that your God. So, we're going into the fall. Fall is my favorite time of the year, especially here in southern Ohio. The humidity finally disappears, the leaves change, and football and basketball arrive. And I love football, and I love basketball. I especially love Kentucky basketball, as does Jesus. And, but I, here's what I have to remind myself when I'm sitting there watching the Bengals or I'm sitting there watching the Wildcats or whatever, it's too frustrating to watch the Reds right now, but we sit there and watch that. I have to remind myself that win, lose, whatever happens, March Madness comes, it's a young man bouncing, passing, shooting a ball and nothing more. It has no eternal significance What? So ever, and yet what I see in our area, tell me if I'm wrong, I see a lot of people who, quite frankly, Ohio State football is their God. I'll prove it to you. I've seen this. I have seen people criticize the church. 
or make outlandish comments about God, and they're like, eh, well, everybody believes something different. But then if they say, you know what, I think Urban Meyer's overrated. Boom! All of a sudden, what are you talking about? Then they get upset. Guess what? In your heart, here's God, here's Urban Meyer. Am I wrong? You show me what you're passionate about. You show me where you spend your time. You show me where you spend your money. I will show you your God. Ask yourself this. We all drive around and we turn on the radio or I like to listen to podcasts or whatever you listen to. And eventually your mind starts to drift, doesn't it? No matter what you listen to, eventually your mind just starts to drift. If you're anything like me, your mind starts to drift. Where does it drift to? Where does it most often go? That's your God. And if so, if you come and tell me, as, as, as some of you have over the years, Matt, I just, uh, I just don't feel close to God, right? I just don't feel God is real. I just don't, you know, I just, I want more. I'm, I'm struggling. And one of the things I'm going to ask you is this. You may not be close to God because you have placed something in between you and God. So if you've placed football in between you and God, if you've placed uh, money in front of you and God, if you've placed you know, relationships between you and God, you're not close to God. And that is the problem. It's called idolatry. The Bible talks about it all the time. And everybody has different idols. Some people, if they, if they have a relationship fall apart, they fall apart. Other people can just go from relationship to relationship, like, ah. But then if they lose money, ugh. Have you ever asked yourself who your true God is? Because you're never going to be able to worship, truly worship, if you placed an idol between you and the one true God. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But if you were able to do that, if you're able to root those things out of your life, worship will change you. It will change you. Yeah. What about singing? Matt, do I have to sing? Yeah, you have to sing. I don't have a good voice. Neither do I. If you remember that song by Biz Marquee, You Got What I Need, that's me on a good day. I was once driving my nephews. They were little kids. I was taking them from my sister's house to my mom and dad's house. They're in the back of my car, and they got their little games and stuff. They're back there playing, so I'm not paying attention. I turn on the radio, and I start singing something, and, and, and I, I hear this sound behind me. I look back, and my like five-year-old nephew goes, Uncle Matt, please stop. <laughs> I get it. I get it. All right, now let me tell you a story. When I grew up in this church in the 70s and 80s, there was a woman who attended this church. I, I didn't know her name. I was a little kid. She was much older. My sister Amy and I called her Mrs. Roper because she looked just like Mrs. Roper from Three's Company, even dressed like her. And 
for some sadistic reason, my mom would always sit me and my sister, my sister right near her somewhere. And she would sing at the top of her lungs. And a musicologist would say it was an abomination. She would sing. And I kid you not, it sounded just like this. If you don't believe me, you can ask my sister. You guys, I don't know if mom will admit to it. But and, and, and she would go, ah. And my sister and I would just crack up. We're just sitting there laughing. Of course, mom slapped us. Shut up. You know, get that look on your face. And she just kept going and going because we'd sing three or four songs. So this is going on for 20 minutes. You know how hard it is to keep like a seven-year-old from laughing for 20 minutes? When you're listening to this, what sounds like two cats fighting outside? But it was years later. Fast forward all these years later, after my 10 years as an atheist, going to seminary. One of my very first seminary classes was worship. And I remember the professor, Jack Reese, stood up and said, too many people aren't singing just because they think their audience are the people in the seats around them when in fact their audience is on a throne in heaven. And that is their only audience. When you come in here, when the praise band comes up here, this is not a performance. This is to lead you to sing to the throne in heaven what you believe about the one sitting on the throne. Worship is an audience of one. God and God only. And he gave you that voice. And he wants you to sing. I always wondered why it was Mrs. Roper, she had to know what she sounded like. At some point, some like cousin or girlfriend had to tell her, oh honey, you know. But then I was ashamed to realize, yes, she knew exactly what she sounded like. But she didn't care what the people in the seats thought. She only cared about what the God on the throne thought. We get so caught up in what kind of songs are we singing? How loud are they going to be? What are we going to... Now, look, I get it. There are, there are good praise songs. There are bad praise songs. There are good hymns. There are so-so hymns. I, I get that. And I'm talking about from a theological perspective. I can't listen to Caleb because about one in five songs makes me want to scream. Just the words in them are not biblical. That, and as a dude, I just don't like songs where you could take the word Jesus out, put in a girl's name, and it would sound like a power ballad. I don't like that. I want to worship Jesus, not dance with him. So, I understand all that. But at the end of the day, it's about us coming together on Saturday evening or Sunday morning and singing together, regardless of what you sound like, to an audience of one. And before you do that, you need to prepare yourself. You need to prepare yourself. I'll end this way. I heard David Jeremiah tell this story. He said, the president of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, which at one time was like the Christian Harvard the president there 
this was decades ago, got invited to meet an African king. He was in Africa for a mission, and on a mission trip, and the king of this country wanted to meet with him. So he agreed. But before he could go into the audience chamber and sit with the king, there were all these rituals he had to go, they had to prepare him, what he could say, what he could do, all this, how he approached the king. And so he went through all that, and he came back, and he was speaking at Wheaton Chapel. And he was talking about this visit and how important it is to prepare ourselves before we go before the king. Because in one sense, God is always with us, but in another sense, when we come to worship, he's really with us. And so he was telling them, you need to prepare yourself. You need to come, sing, think about who God is. Think about who you are. Think about what he has done for you. Prepare yourself and then sing and see what the difference makes. And he says this in front of the chapel and he's got his hands up and then he fell over dead. And the next week the chapel speaker said, let me tell you something. No one was better prepared to go meet Jesus at that moment. David Jeremiah joke, that's how I want to go out. I think it would be kind of a bummer end of a service myself, but I wonder how many of you would just get up and walk out if, I did, if that happened to me, by the way. It's like, ah, the line at Bob Evans, we got to go. Um, prepare yourself. Think about it. Before you walk in here, think about who God is, who you are, what you've received. Prepare your heart. Understand that there are going to be people around you doing things that may make you uncomfortable, raising hands, saying whatever. And then sing. And remember you're singing to an audience of one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that not only did you create us, but you have given us the freedom to come together and to worship you on your throne. Help us to prepare ourselves to know you better to praise you well, to not be embarrassed about what we sound like and not to care what others sound like, not to keep our eyes on, on our, our head, our mind on what song's being sung or whether I like it or whether it's too loud, but just can I praise you? May we do so together so we can practice to do it when we're face-to-face for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, folks, uh, it may be, if you've got kids back in promised land, it may be just a few minutes before they finish up their craft, so just take that time, peace and quiet. The rest of you can go beat the Baptist to the restaurants. God bless you. God goes with you. See you. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.